G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 8 of the Footyology podcast. Finals are here, they're upon us. First weekend of the finals, always massive. Four huge games, we're here to dissect them all. We being myself, Roku, and my sparring partner, Mark Fine. G'day Finey. Hey Roku, what a great weekend of footy in the finish. In the finish, yeah. It took a while to get there. I've got to say, I was a little bit underwhelmed by uh, what had happened up to that Saturday night game. But, geez, hard to beat that one for drama and uh, twists and turns. And uh, it was amazing. And it was real edge-of-the-seat stuff. So, look, let's not mess around. Let's get straight into it. We're going to uh, go through each game in detail. And we're going to do that right now. On Footyology, that's a wrap. Rightio then, eight teams became six, two straight through to a preliminary, two in mothballs, headlines. What what was the single most important thing that came out of the weekend? Watch out the best teams. The the, the Swannies are coming, and it's, for me, the big story is it's all points, everything points to the mega prelim. Uh, mega prelim. Adelaide, Sydney. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And I guess, well, I, I'd say my headline in story terms is probably the, the, the Tigers. Yeah. So the close they can taste it. Um, no, I agree with you. For me, Adelaide, Sydney is, you know, oh, look, I might be jumping the gun here. I hope that's not the de facto grand final because to me, they are the two. And look, the latter doesn't say this, but to me, they are the two best equipped teams. Clearly, to the that, it is the. Row, it is the de facto grand final. It will happen. Geelong uh, stick a fork in them as they were when they played the Swans in the prelim last year. And Richmond's a beautiful story. It's great that they're on a side of the draw that means that they can play in a grand final. Sydney, they, they had a 30-point start over Sydney at home and Sydney came over the top of them. Adelaide pants them. Even in this great year, those two teams actually had beaten them and had a bit of ownership over them. So... Sydney, when they <laughs> they are flexing their muscles, they were able to turn off that game at half time and float to the line. It was something else. Well, speaking as an Essen supporter, at least gave you a fair bit of time to get used to the idea that this would be the last <laughs> time you were seeing your team for the season. All right, let, let's go through them chronologically. Yep. I'm having trouble with that word. Chronologically, now Thursday evening seems like a fair while ago now, but Adelaide GWS. Um, you got to say, is the spectacle disappointing? But only, no um, slide on Adelaide, only disappointing because of the Giants' lack of competitiveness. GWS are so much like a kid at school who's clever, who doesn't do his homework yeah. and doesn't work hard. And they get through school. Of course they get through. And they have their high points. There are certain exams and certain subjects that they can do on natural ability. But in the end, to get into the big courses and get the big marks... 
you got to work. It's a combination of everything because it, it's, it finds you out. And that's what finals and football is doing to GWS. The long season. And I'll tell you what, even in the game against Adelaide after half-time, there was that brilliance of three goals. And, you know, Toby, their goals are beautiful. Things that they do are draw you into what is promised. But they are the kid that has not put in the hard work and that was so disappointing. I reckon Leon Cameron and the coaching stuff would absolutely hate that suggestion, but you just can't escape it because you look at the talent pound for pound and they have the most talent. I don't don't think anyone can question that, but they are clearly a long way from being the best combination as a 22. And why could that be the case? Well, application. Um, I did a bit of number crunching today. I know you're dubious about numbers. Oh, no, no, no. I was saying there's there's a place for stats. Yeah. But we can't defer to it the whole time. Well, no, no. But there's one, something really stood out to me. Now, uh, um, GWS, even in that game on Thursday night, they broke even for clearances with Hmm. Adelaide. So I thought, where do they rank in clearances? So I went to the differentials, which... For those who are interested, uh, the stats people prefer to look at differentials rather than the fours because not every game's played in similar conditions. So over the course of the season, the plus or minus in every category relative to your opposition is probably a better indicator. Now, GWS on the clearance differentials rank number one. But you've got to turn clearance wins into scores. There are three ways of scoring, scoring from turnovers, from clearances and from kick-ins. And the ratio goes about sort of 65% turnovers, 30, I hope this adds up, 30-odd percent clearances, a minimal amount kick-ins. Now, in terms of scores from clearances, they only rank number 13. Now, I look at those figures, and that's that's an incredible disparity. So that seems to indicate some sort of coaching issue, doesn't it? Where they're good enough to win those takeaways, but they can't convert them to scores. That seems to me to be a real uh, weakness of system. You know what? And I'm not not being rude here, Rowan. You lost me at turnovers because the three ways of scoring are too broad and most of them are turnovers, but they're not the turnovers that we as football fans see as damaging and causing a goal to the opposition. In other words... You know, kicking it to an opponent who's a kick and a half out from goal or or losing the handle in the middle with all your players running forward. A turnover really is losing the ball anywhere in play. It can be in your back line in a contested piece of football. It's picked up and then worked to the other end of the ground. I'm telling you, to divide all forms of scoring into those three big blocks, it's, it's honestly, it's like doing... It's like doing fine surgery with sledgehammers. It's well, too heavy-handed. Okay, but that, that's that's a bigger argument. No, but, but I'm just I'm just saying it doesn't tell their issue that. But just the feel is that their forward line is not functional, and often their midfielders who get takeaways are really um, forced to either do too much, or they're kicking to inappropriate spots. You know, but you're backing me up there because because if you have that bigger disparity, it means that the there's no connection between the midfield and well, the that's forward it. line. I'm saying, but that's the fact. I don't care how they get the ball. I don't care if it's from a turnover, from kick-ins, from clearances. When their players look up into the forward line, they they are faced with this prospect. Hit the target 
or we don't score. Because there's no idea of putting it up there and letting it hit the ground and the fight starts again. It, it just never seems to start again for them. No, no. Let's talk on a more basic level. I, I think everyone seems to agree now in hindsight that they went into this game too tall. They certainly, in the conditions, they certainly look less agile. Um, they had, they couldn't lock the ball in the forward line. They couldn't prevent Adelaide rebounding, uh, vice versa at the other end. Now, they're going to be forced to structure differently because they won't have Cameron. Um, you'd, Stevie Johnson would have to come into that side. They may have to take a gamble on Orion Griffin, but they've got to try something because basically they're in a position now where we've waited all year for it to click and it just hasn't clicked. Do you know why they went into tall Rowan? Why? Because they don't have the right players otherwise. Steve Johnson is done. He's slow. So you don't think they should pick him? Well, he's only going to add to the problem of, of not being able to A, the ball pressure, pressure in the forward line and B be dangerous because of his speed. Tim Taranto's a good kid, but he's a sort of inside mid. He can do a bit of a run with roll. He'll help the situation. Griffin would be the worst move of all time. That's just adding no life to the midfield and somebody who's four weeks away from finding touch with the ball. And they've got no one else, Rowan. They've got nobody else to improve this situation. Well, Devin Smith... Yeah, well, Devin Smith... If he's available, I if think he's he fit, makes Dev, a If Devin Smith is available, he comes back in. But Devin Smith's natural instinct is to hunt the ball to kick a goal. Let's talk about the winners, because they deserve more airtime yeah, than, than the Giants. Now, what I've loved about it, I've loved watching Adelaide all year. Best attack by 100 miles. I think their um, their defence is really able. Where they've won me over, not that I had a lot of doubts, but over the second half of the season the backup for Sloan. And this was the uh, indelible proof of it. No Sloan going into a final. Matt Crouch been great all year, but Brad Crouch in in the back half of the season has approached Matt Crouch's level. Um, you've got Richard Douglas. He, if he isn't the most underrated midfielder of this season, he's just been consistent week in, week out. And what was great was he did not have a great start to the game. And in the third quarter, he denied GWS the comeback. What a great... And kicked two, I think, kicked didn't he? Two, yeah. but took a mark, a really courageous intercept mark off a terrible kick in by Zach Williams. Plus, you got Charlie Cameron, who zips in and out and yeah. gives him a bit of dash. you got Rory Atkins. you got Riley Knight. Uh, you got David Mackay. Um, You've you got guys who never get paid any, any attention. Plus, in the last few weeks, and I think this guy has made a difference, Paul Seedsman. So that that, yeah. that that midfield, no, he gives no, him he's a quick. Bit of dash. No, he's, he's dash, yeah. But, but he also, he, he's other. He knows to be in that team, he needs dash and to kick the ball beautifully. He mm. kicked a great goal early, and then every one of his other kicks was too biting off more than he could chew. But he's got to be in the team because what they don't have, and this is really unlucky, is their brilliant informed Brody Smith back to his best yeah. football, which is all Australian. Kicks a beautiful first goal, and he's out for a year. No, it's tra- well, not tragic. It's shocking luck. But if any side can withstand that, I think it's them because they've got Rory Weird on another halfback flank. They've, they've got that cover, but you know what? Brody Smith is a goal-kicking halfback flanker. Actually, there's very few of them in the comp like him. They're, they're, they're in a great situation. Now, people got to – well, you don't want to get ahead of yourself. You think – they're likely to play Sydney in a preliminary, which would be massive. But they get over that, still got to come to the MCG. And 
their MCG record is actually... Moderate. Yeah, it's, it's got better, though. It's got better. And people look at the Collingwood game, and that, that was a real problem for them. But mm. they've won more than they've lost in recent times. It's not about the... You know, the game against Carlton, they, I did not like them that afternoon. That was a must-win game for them. They just rugged Carlton at the end of the afternoon with a couple of those key forwards getting lost again. It was actually Jenkins who just snapped into action yeah. in the last quarter. It was um, wasn't and, Taylor Walker, and they. Oh, but geez, they got a hard working forward set up. All yeah. those key forwards run their asses off. Yeah, Eddie Betts is Eddie Betts. Yeah. And, and wasn't he hit form again? Yeah. Oh well, it was classic. It was a classic. It was more than a cameo. It basically set them up to win the game. All right, that's just, just two players very quickly. Yep. Uh, they're never going to get credit. Or Kelly might, isn't he? Becoming a good yep, footballer. Another one. Uh, they've got a lot that fly under the radar. How about in the second quarter what Hardigan did? It was actually a couple of his kicks forward that set up goals. And he's the last person you think of setting up goals. They're all doing well. Yeah. No, they're, they're in a, a, a brilliant space to win their first flag for, what, almost 20 years. Incredible drought. All right, let's go. Uh, we'll get to that later. Let's go to Friday night, uh, Richmond, Geelong. I was sitting on the boundary for SCN. I've got to say, I've been to the MCG a lot. I've heard a lot of crowds. That was as loud as any, 95,000, yep. and uh, particularly in that last quarter. You know, there is there is a real fervour about this Richmond assault. And you know what? People are cynical about this stuff. But I've got no doubt that crowd helped them over the line okay. and, and will continue to help them. We'll talk about that shortly. The all right, fourteen minutes, 14, 14 minute, fourteen second mark of the third quarter. Mm. Geelong level the scores. It's three goals eight apiece. Zach Guthrie missed that shot. It is a terrible game on th- two or three counts. Now mm. there's plenty of pressure, but there's also a huge amount of fumbling mm. when players are not under pressure. It becomes inferred, and the kicking was calamitous on both sides. There's again, clangers don't quite say these. It's a terrible kick if you've got the ball and you're not kicking over the man on the mark so you're in f- and you hit the opposition player. And it happened on a number of occasions. This game demanded somebody to break free of the pressure, the greasiness, the occasion. And we waited for Dangerfield and Martin. Martin stepped up mm. and Richmond proved how much pressure they put on because Dangerfield stepped up but he could not take a step without getting caught. Richmond destroyed Dangerfield. That is a great sign. More hats off to Trent Cochin, who we'll get to. I mean, Cochin's, uh, Cochin, I thought, set it up with... Um, look, he only ended up with 20-odd possessions, but heap of tackles, I think. Leading tackle, uh, tackler for the Tigers. Leading clearance winner, I think. Reduced Dangerfield's effectiveness. And you mentioned Dusty, and there's no doubt he, he was the shining jewel. But even... From that moment in the third quarter, they conjured goals from Floston, Edwards, and then Prestia. You know, those more peripheral parts of the Tiger 22 are having a bigger and bigger impact. Did Geelong lose the game effectively when Cam Guthrie, who's doing a pretty good job most of the night on Martin, goes off injured? I think so. I, I think we've said on this podcast previously, I reckon the main reason for Geelong's better form in the last month or so had been Guthrie. Now, Menegola has been good most of the year. He was disappointing. But Cam Guthrie made the difference, I think. Just gave him a bit more pace, a bit more midfield depth, a bit more ball-winning ability. Losing him for them was fatal. And what does that tell you? That their midfield still doesn't bat deep enough. And for an amazing year by Tom Stewart, 
steady beyond the number of games that he's played filling the Enright role. It all fell apart for him, especially in the third quarter where he turns the ball over, then he kicks it and turns it over, then he gets it again and turns it over, and the kid at least keeps presenting, but he's looking for somewhere, a big hole to crawl into it at one stage because he just can't do anything but turn it over it. I just want to mention quickly something else that struck me sort of numbers-wise was I was thinking back to their preliminary final loss last year and that night they had a massive amount of inside 50s, heaps more than the Swans. I think it was 60-odd, bordered on 60 and couldn't get couldn't buy a goal with it. And I remember talking to Chris Scott about it and he was talking about their not penetrating the 50 quick enough. So they changed up their game a bit over pre-season. They decided to handball more, and I've checked the numbers there, the second uh, lowest kick-to-handball ratio in the comp behind yep. Melbourne. And they made Dangerfield more of an inside player and used his hand skills to release other players on the fly, including those running half-backs such as Tui, Stewart, mm-hmm. Mackie, etc., etc. Now, I'm wondering if they've created another problem here because... They were restricted to 38 inside 50s. You're not going to win many games with that few inside 50s. So they've got forward line conversion issues. That was their lowest score of a season by a mile and it made dropping Menzel look even sillier, I think. But they've gone, they've sort of traded in one problem for another, I think. Yeah, they have. Geelong, desperate to be able to try and open up and use the MCG as it is used against them. Uh Still found it too wide, too big, and they their kicking had to be perfect. Tough on a greasy night with that Richmond pressure, and very rarely were they able to uh, get the ball in transition. When they had it, the fact that they weren't able to get a chain of possessions ruined what they were that change up in their game. I I think they like class. I, well, that's, I've, that's I've felt this all year that they've been. You know, and their numbers were good and they're high on the ladder all year, but I've just felt that they've lacked a bit of class. And how many times have we said, and I'll get to this one as well, but Stephen Motlop, he has to be um, he has to be really, really good for them, I think, to go that extra level. And he's not. And I, I think at the end of the day, Richmond, Richmond are a bit similar in some ways, but Richmond are a better team than the Cats. So the Cats, where they are now, they're not that good a combination that they can overcome that lack of X-factor and brilliance, I think. And, and for me, that's the bottom line. They're just not good enough to be a premiership team. Now, look, if they somehow upset the Swans, and boy, that's going to be some sort of upset, um, you know, maybe they, can, maybe they can still salvage it, but it's hard to see. It really is. Just quickly on Richmond. A lot is said about Richmond because it's such a developing story. To me, it's actually quite simple. A number of players in the, you know, not brilliant footballers who are committed to putting the pressure on. If they can just break even in all these different situations, they fumble, opposition fumbles, big deal. Let the whole thing sit in a holding pattern like it did on Friday night till the superstar breaks free of his opponent, which he has done 20 out of 20 three times this year. You've got Rance up one end controlling the airwaves so nothing terrible is going to happen in terms of a forward taking hold of you. And everybody else just make it a mess till Dustin Martin don't argues his way and puts Richmond beyond reach. It they're, keeps happening every week. They're a great team. Exert great pressure. You know, if they end up winning this flag it'll be for a second year in a row because I think the Bulldogs are saying a tribute to the value of team over individual. I see, I, I, see I, I, I think it's a bit of a mirage. It's team 
doing the work till the individual. If Dustin Martin wasn't in that team, that team wouldn't be in the eight. Really, I just if they no, would I not, don't agree. With I that. absolutely wouldn't. It wouldn't. I, I don't think it would. Well, let's move on. Sydney Essendon, uh, probably less said about this on the better. No, unfair. Um, Swans, they are. You know, if Adelaide isn't the form team, the Swans are. Um, three of the last four games now, they've scored more than 120 points. Good stat for you, Fine. It took me half a quarter to dig it up, so don't dismiss it. We have now had 635 finals in league football history. They're 10-3 in the second quarter, highest ever uh, scoring second quarter in a yeah, final. Yeah. Now, that, that yes. tells you how special it was. Seven of those goals came in 16 and a half minutes, and they just bullied Essendon. They bullied them around the stoppages. You know, Essendon were good for like 10 minutes, didn't convert enough of their opportunities. And the Swans just took over, and it, it, the game was done by... Halfway through the second quarter, within you are spot on. Within the shadows of half time, Essendon had been reduced to a vessel that was carrying a couple of players into retirement. Some kids who did not know what McDonald Tipping Witty has. I had a shocker. He's blasted onto the AFL soon. He was hit by a finals tsunami. Yeah, a finals <laughs> a finals note, and that is this ain't. You're not in Kansas now. No, and they had, uh, look, Hurley and Fantasia both looked really underdone yep. and played accordingly. Yeah, Connor McKenna was... No, he really, he had a fumble, a fumble I'm saying, and at, at times he was sort of facing the wrong way. Yeah. He, he wanted to be more accountable, which is not his go. I'll tell you what it did say to me, though. That rising star, that nab rising star, for him to be, clear, to me, clearly Essendon's best player and most... Quick to adjust to what was happening, McGrath. Yeah, he was. He is some kid. I, I, I look the other credit where it's due. I, I thought Marty Gleeson was pretty good for us, and I think he's had a pretty good year. I, I think he tried his guts out. Yeah, well, he did. I, I didn't see that actually. <laughs> yeah, which th- is two probably, or three times. Yeah, no, probably just as well. I'm a bit icky about vomiting. Um, but look, the the areas where they've been uh, most efficient all year: clearances, contestable, and pace. They got found out for all three, they did. so, they so did. it was no great surprise. You Look, know, I know you're a bit upset by it, and Essendon supporters are sort of that can be a real shock to the system. We're going to get to that too. But I just say this to Essendon supporters: it's very hard to put together a match-winning forward line in AFL football today. Teams spend millions to do it, and mm. Tom Boyd was in the VFL today. Yeah, Essendon's actually got it—a beautiful forward line that fell apart a bit at the end of the year. Hooker not available. Yeah, Fantasia not fit. Yeah, you know, match fit, green not available. You will start the year next year with the revelation that Stewart has become Fantasia. Yeah, the envy of most teams. Essendon forward lines win games. You've still got a good one. Jury's still out for me, and we'll get to uh, expectations and uh, acceptance of performances like that in my rants. Stay tuned. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to the last game and saving the best for last. You don't get finals drama much more edgy your seat than that. Um, we've had three games now that have had extra time in finals. The other two, one of the two teams has failed Blow, to score a blowout goal. Blowout City. Yeah, they Hawthor- have Hawthorne North was yeah. messy. Yeah, one-way traffic. So was Collingwood and West Coast in 07 in the end. But this one, and I, I guess the critic... Well, no, hang yeah, on, this one was as well. What? It was, it was Blowout City, but Port couldn't kick that extra goal to... The well, that's what I was going to say. The critical moment was Port 13 points up. 
nine seconds, I think, left in the first period of extra time. Kennedy gets that goal, brings it back to seven, just gave him a sniff. But there were that many critical moments. The deliberate out-of-bounds against the Eagles, which I know you want to talk about. The uh, Eric McKenzie saving that ball from going through for a Can point. Can we talk about that for a second? Well, quickly, yeah. They, that is exactly the sort of thing that when it is a point, which it looks like it must be, people analyse it. He should have done this, this, this and this. But in real time, he had half a second to do this. He actually did everything that you would do in hindsight in super slow motion. It was Superb. I don't know how he contorted his body enough to avoid taking it through the scoring zone. He had a plan, and we were watching the plan involve him take it and head toward the points. That was amazing. It was amazing. It look, was and, amazing. And, you know, look, we, we don't know how they're going to end up, but if they do, if, if it does, I'll tell you what, if they did win the flag, that would be a fairy tale of sorts as well. I mean, yep. they were barely in the eight until the last minute of correct, the season. Correct, Um But that was incredible. Look, Port... Um, yeah, David Koch's comments today are ridiculous, really. I mean, I think Port have had a great on season. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry for those listening later in the week. Um, ridiculous assertion on his part. You know, he's got no business talking about that. But they've had a really good season. You know, they're, they're a smidgen away from a top four uh, finish. And no one expected Port, I think, to be a contender this year. And, and the season ended well because a lot of kids played on yeah. on the weekend and actually looked capable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, you know, uh, a- accuracy in the end or inaccuracy, 10-16. Yeah, I felt sorry for Charlie Dixon because I thought he played a terrific game. But in the end, the finishing, All right. you he's feel, kicked 3-6. Now, you feel sorry for him. We can talk about the Shuey decision. And it has been talked about. Okay, well, you know, let's look. We've had a, a heap of debate about it, but we, we should talk about it. Um, I'll give you my take. I thought it was a free kick. I thought you've got to watch those things in real time. You, you know, umpires don't get the benefit of seeing that. And you know what? Even on the replay, it was pretty hard to start with, borderline, I reckon. And it's where the tackle finishes that counts for me. End story. That so it, you agree with me? Totally. It lingered on his neck for a sustained period. Yeah on the back of some decisions that went horribly against West Coast. Now, that that free kick that went to Hartlett was unlucky, but it was a free. Yeah. Pittard is not allowed to do what he did to Petrie. That is a reversal every day. It's not a report. It's a reversal. It was a forceful push over at Petrie. He didn't have time to fake it. But, uh, hang on, let's concentrate on Chewy, though. Because... Well, hang on, hang on. That is a f- turnover at the top of the goal square to Petrie yeah. that was denied. Yeah, 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 true. Oh, look, I, I thought the worst decision was the deliberate paid against, was Te- it Gaff? Gaff, yeah. terrible decision. Shocking. A 50 metre not paid to West Coast mm. when McGovern took the mark just before the end of regular time. Yeah. Still time for them to go forward. He takes mm. a mark and whoever it was just taps it out of his head. I just want to say about Chewy, and a few people tried to... Uh, suggest otherwise on Twitter, and I won't have a bar of this, watch that incident in real time, and who can possibly see with the naked eye... I had no problems with it. ...the, the um, tackle slide up? So we have a situation, because of the way the game is umpired, and it's hard to do so, that we have contentious decisions. But you know what, Rowan? In extra time, Dixon and Boak had shots of goals that would have won the game for Port and missed. Yeah. And then Kennedy and Suey 
had to kick set shot goals and won. And nailed them. There's nothing purer than that. Mm. No, no, you, you, at finals, you, the uh, importance of taking your chances comes home to roost in even more dramatic fashion as it did. Last word, we need to mention him because we haven't. Jeremy McGovern, what a star. That's why West Coast can keep going on in these finals. If you kick the ball uh, without a lot of care into the West Coast back line, that chap's going to mark it. Okay, there's our uh, look at all four finals and uh, significant results and one absolutely amazing uh, conclusion to a game that will linger long in the memory. Just before we move on, Rowan, Richmond lie in wait, GWS or West Coast, who are they better off playing? The club will say they don't care, but who is their best opponent in terms of Richmond making the grand final? Um, Oh, look, I'd say, you know... Despite the fact that GWS aren't travelling well, I'd still say they'd rather play West Coast. And my memory goes back to that round three game, which, you know, it was a pretty wet day, but MCG, Eagles didn't handle it well. It's been a unhappy hunting ground for them. I'd say Richmond would definitely prefer to play the Eagles. So I think that's a lot of people's first instinct. West Coast go terrible at the GWS, disappointing. But if they click, they'll beat Richmond. Mm. I could not disagree more. If Richmond played GWS, then start queuing up, Tiger fans. You are in the grand final. Okay, why? All right, I'll tell you why. First of all, they they remind me a lot of Geelong and their deficiencies with their forward line that's too big, and their back line even is... There's a lot of big blokes in that back line, you know, the sort of uh, core and Tomlinson and whatever. I don't think they're suited to playing Richmond. Similar game how they lost to Richmond at the MCG, by the way, uh, with West Coast. But this is the one, and you mentioned earlier on that the crowd boundary side for Richmond lifted them. Mm. Do you know if Richmond played GWS, I am confident in saying that in the history of Australian rules football, it will be the most one-sided crowd ever to attend a game. They'll get 95,000 people. There'll be a group of impartials. Preliminary final days, always fans. Well, hang on a sec. Time. I'd hardly say the Eagles are sort of swarming with fans in Melbourne. Oh, they'll come. They'll they'll get ten thousand to the ground, ten to fifteen thousand. They mm. were there in beautiful. They always travel. They're very mm. good. Yeah. GWS will get fifteen. Don't know how they afford it? Just quite. GWS will have fifteen hundred people here. Yeah. And there will be ninety three thousand. And also the impartials. I don't think too many people are dying for GWS to make it on the back of all of their. Fortunate, you know, fortunate um, handouts. Mm. It'll be something else. Now, it could count against Richmond if things aren't going well. You know, the oohs and the ahs start to put pressure. But if they get on a roll, it is going to be party time. And the other thing that I really believe is that West Coast, if by the time they get to the prelim, you mentioned Fairy Tale, Sammy Mitchell, yeah. Pritis. Yeah. They're starting to write. And I think Fairy Tale's a part of football, part of a journey where. A group starts to think that we're part of something bigger. Leicester City Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah. there's no fairy tale GWS. They're all just waiting. Oh, it's not this year. We'll wait for the next bus. Mm. No, yeah. I think West Coast are the the danger. And GWS, I'd love to see them make it. I want to be. I'm going to go to that game, and I want to be part of ninety three thousand barracking for the one team. Well, it's a big call. You know what the beauty of it is too. It'll never really be able to be put to the test because one of them will get to play Richmond and the other one won't. That's so right, of course. We'll never really know. But uh, we'll take that on board. And uh, if it does end up Richmond GWS and Richmond smash them, I promise you we'll wheel it out and make you look even cleverer than you obviously are. Time for us to move on.
on Footyology, hot or not. Right, we all know how it works. Finally, you're hot, so I'm going to let you take the new ball. Go. Well, my hot has a touch of the pirates about it. What do you mean? Or on the halfback line for Richmond, there's Blackbeard and Bluebeard. Who is? Blackbeard's Bashar Hawley and yeah. Bluebeard. Redbeard, which is known as a bluebeard, is Nick Floston. That's a good call. There's a lot of facial hair going on there. And he, to me, he actually, to me, is the hot, because I thought he was best on ground on Friday night. He played four great quarters. He was offensively dangerous, sore with the hands and the mark, and for a player that had a serious injury setback this year, hot to the max. Yeah, well, similar theme. I'm starting with a hot, and it goes to Trent Cochin. And uh, you're talking about a guy who's had probably a few finals demons. He didn't just exorcise them. He smashed them. He slit their throat. He buried them, and he danced on their grave. That opening to the game, he goes to Dangerfield, neutralizes Dangerfield, but also makes a real statement himself. He was ferocious. And it wasn't... It wasn't faux aggression. It was it was genuine and it really put you along on the back foot. Ends up with 20 possessions so he's had far higher disposal games but 13 of the 20 contested. Seven clearances I think equal most of any Richmond player. Nine tackles I think equal most of any Richmond player. And a storied career but there has not been a better moment in Trent Cochin's career than that spin and goal. A spin out of danger and goal in the last quarter. Superb effort and uh, hats off to him. He was terrific. My next is a hot, I thought the umpiring in the Richmond Geelong game was as good as it can get. With all that fumbling, it becomes difficult to umpire because players are crashing into each other, a lot of appeals for two highs, for intentional out of bounds, but they held their nerve and consistently adjudicated the game quarter by quarter. Well done to the three men involved. Okay, I'm going with a not next and uh, same game again. Stephen Motlop, we touched on him earlier, but he just doesn't deliver. And when he delivers, it's far too infrequent. It's never sustained. He must be a crushing disappointment to any Geelong supporter and uh, probably an even bigger one to the coaching group. I had a look at his finals record. He actually played a reasonable final series in 2013. Since then, five finals, 18 touches against Richmond. That was the highest disposal game he's had in any of those five finals and three goals in those five finals. Geelong aren't so good that they can afford for him to be a passenger. Too often he's a passenger, and he was a passenger again on Friday night. Must do better. My last not hot is a growing problem for the AFL. They need to address it somehow, and that is we are not losing the art of ruck work. We're losing ruck work. Now, there are so many times where the ball is thrown up and one player goes for the ruck and the others just wait for him, either to grab him or to grab where the ball is palmed to. It's not the idea. Stopping is supposed to be two ruckmen. And if you don't go up for the ruck, there should be a distinct advantage for the team that does. It needs to be sorted out over the break. Uh, I've got a theory, but and the theory is if... You can grab the ball in the ruck, and if you take it with two hands, it's your free. In other words, if somebody doesn't go for it, just grab it, and it's your ball. But if somebody does go for it, and you go for it with two hands, and you miss it, you give away the free. It just means that if somebody if, if they throw it up, and there's only one ruckman going for it, it's basically a free kick to that team. Radical. Uh, okay, let's finish off. I'm going to finish with a hot, 
and it goes to West Coast. Much maligned West Coast. We've all got into them about being soft, lacking resilience. Well, I haven't seen much better displays of resilience by any team this year than what they did in Adelaide on Saturday night. You're talking about a side which in games this season decided by two goals or less, they've won three, they've lost six. So the odds were heavily stacked against them. They didn't kick a goal in that game for an hour and yet still managed to win. You know, unbelievable. When they did bob up and it was uh, Petrie and who was the other one in the end? Prittis. So the old-timers sort of got them back in contention. 13 points down, again in extra time, managed to haul that back and win it after the bell. You know, amazing effort. I reckon they will grow a lot out of that. And I give them a serious chance against the Giants because I think they match up okay against them. And in the space of two weeks, well, not even two full games, well, they've knocked over the top side and by enough to get into the eight, and then they've won a final against expectations on the road, magnificent effort, and uh, their season has been absolutely restored. And in two weeks, they've ended Adam Simpson talk and probably given him more years in the job. Yeah. Strange game, footy. It is funny, isn't it? On Footyology, Media Watch. All right, the controversial bit, Media Watch. Uh, I thought it timely this week, finally, that we talk about TV coverage of finals football. Because something always changes. They throw in a few little tricks. Things just change up a little bit. What does it all mean? Well, um, I'll I'll play Mr. Scrooge again. Not a lot for me. I was fairly underwhelmed by the coverage of the opening weekend of the finals. First off, while I think about it, uh, little tricks. What do we see? We saw the, uh, is it the Toyota time tracker or whatever it is? Yes. How does that add to the, I mean, the, the figures are meaningless. They they show you. Hang on, is it the time tracker? What's it called? No, well, there's a the GPS, the individual individual. So they're showing GPS. you distances, but what have they got the ball? Have they not got the ball? What does it mean? You know, what, there's no context to any of the numbers, and it looks, you know, wow, it looks, it's a little right hand column on the screen. But that was the big deal that when they did the the mega wall. No, the the. <laughs> The um, collective bargaining agreement. Oh, yeah. They wanted something back from the players. Yeah. The players said... Um, we'll give you GPS yeah, info. Yeah, you can have that GPS info. Wow. Fantastic. Well, that's going to drag a, a lot of previously uh, disinterested people into footy coverage, isn't it? would it? if they keep the GPS on all week and you can just track where every player goes <laughs> <laughs> on a Saturday night. That could be dangerous. A um, couple of observations. Now, you might have noticed that Channel 7 on Saturday night in Adelaide uh, so you get used to their Friday night coverage where you've got 58 people sitting on the desk and 26 mm-hmm. on the boundary. And the crew, if you're ever at the MCG on a Friday night, have a look at the crew surrounding the seven guys down the ground. It's half the crowd. It's ridiculous. They've got security guards for the callers, lest they be you know, completely overwhelmed by the uh, the uh, the mob who uh, uh, just can't get enough of Careful. footy commentators. Rant territory here. What's that? You're heading into rant yeah, territory. Yeah, no, no, true. Um, but... It, it was stripped back on Saturday night. So you had only two callers, one of whom was Jason Bennett. Now, I really like Jason Bennett as a caller, so I wasn't unhappy about that. But, it, you know, he's not but, acknowledged but, as being in the A-team. You had one special comments bloke, which was Richo, and you had one guy on the boundary, is it Mark Soderstrom, yes. who actually goes all right, I reckon. And he sort of almost became a de facto comments bloke, and he had some decent um, stats and stuff, which he threw in as well. But... 
I, I asked someone who knows this stuff, I said, well, what's going on there? And they said, well, they're cost-cutting. And I said, what, finals time? You go a whole year covering, pouring everything into it, and then you cut costs come finals time? That's it, pretty weird. But it happens in TV. I don't know if it's cost-cutting, and I know you've got some inside info, but it's uh, an annual budget for coverage of whether it's sport or a reality program, yeah. and it's overspent during <clears throat> the, the period leading into the either grand finale in a reality show or the finals in football. Yeah, so you know and what it means. They washed out on too many stories in correct. Player X's lounge room or something exactly, at half-time. Exactly. When, when, it all got, when it all got checked bookie with Dustin and Dangerfield and they just spent, they spent too much of their money... We come to the finals. I'm worried that the grand final is going to be on a on an on a uh, iPhone, a GoPro. <laughs> well, it could be. Could it be like the 1979 grand final where the um, the camera guys famously went on strike and you had the executives manning the cameras? We're lucky we got Wayne Wayne Harms's knock from the Ford pocket yep. in it at all. Um, so where's the money go? That's an interesting one for people uh, who want to do some digging there. Um, secondly, now this really got my goat. Technical stuff. Now, you know, we've, we've all got our personal hobby horses about, you know, which shots they take and when and why. Now, I understand if you've got, if you're Channel 7, you've got ads after every goal, it makes the business of replays difficult. But when you squeeze them in, can you at least make sure they're the right replays? Exhibit A, the Sydney Essendon debacle. Uh, right when Sydney were getting on top, early second quarter. Buddy Franklin flies for a big hanger. He doesn't take many, so it would have been a, a real spectacle. But he didn't take the mark. The ball hits the ground. Connor McKenna for Essendon fumbles. Buddy pounces on the crumbs and snaps a goal. Cut away to uh, Channel 7 ad. So you're waiting for the replay, wait for the replay. They come back. They show the replay. Do they show the replay of the fumble that led to the goal, which was an important goal? No. They show a replay of Buddy Franklin's drop mark. So, again, well, why would you choose that replay over the replay of something that actually meant something? They did the same with Eddie Betts on Thursday night. It was one of Eddie Betts's goal, but the salient point in the goal was tremendous uh, tackle pressure or just ahead of it, but three angles of the goal. You know, the celebration became more of the replay than the setup to the celebration. I've got a, a person. Was it super slow mo? Because yeah. they, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Know, everything in super slow mo. I mean, we all love seeing Eddie smile, and I guess there are a lot of people who watch that aren't as involved in the uh, minutiae of the foot of the game. They just love the cel- celebrities and the personalities. I understand that. I don't want the person pressing the buttons to be that person. Well, yeah, but don't, wouldn't those people also like to see how the goal happened? You know what it reminds me of? The early days of electronic scoreboards, you know, Waverley and, mm. and then even the MCG, where you'd see a replay and you'd want the replay to be the bit of action which led up to the goal-scoring chance in the goal square. But no, you see a replay of a guy lining up from two metres out directly in front. Yeah. You know, show us something that's relevant. So... So yeah, that's your, that's the, your bugbear? Oh, it's one of. I've got several. But I, I'm at the finals time. Don't you get these things right? I've got one that I hate. Okay, you go. Finals time. You just know it's finals time with the gratuitous cutaway shot after a goal. Oh, crowd cutaways. Or a, but to the same person. The <clears throat> the I, I can tell you club by club who it is or how the dynamic works, right? was Mick Malloy in the Richmond game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Channel 7 personality. Luckily, yeah. he was sitting with a mate of mine called Chowie, so at least Chowie got to do a lot. Yeah. But uh, 
if there's a prime minister at the game, yeah, constant shots of a bored or sleeping <laughs> prime minister. They well, don't. Well, hang on. If you're Malcolm Turnbull, you you got a, a baby in one arm and a, <laughs> a pot of beer in the other. The um, the the next shot is Eric Banner at St Kilda. Oh, if Eric's not there, it's Michael Klim. Klim. Yep. Oh, 2010 grand final. Oh, it was just they were on camera more often than Brendan Goddard and Lenny Hayes. Yeah, that became a problem because they weren't playing. The unfortunately. And it's not Eddie Maguire's fault. They love the shot now of Eddie and his sons. As as the sons grow up, and they're good-looking boys, yeah. but exuberance or extreme... They love getting Eddie when he's really... You know, the game's gone, and it's upsetting for Eddie. I think it's a bit unfair, actually. He's just there watching the game. Constant shots of What him. about Joffre? So has Eddie, Eddie's shots replaced Joffre's shots? Joffre is just the gold jacket. Incidentally, doesn't Eddie's... I can't remember his name. Eddie's older son. Doesn't he look like Darcy Moore? Yeah, I mean... It's the, anyway, sorry, just well, they're, good the they're grown up good looking. No, they are. They Keen are. Collingwood supporters. But these shots become, and the people don't want them either. They catch them, you know, just, but constantly. All right, you, sh- you show Mick Malloy once or twice. Is this now cross-promotion for the front bar? What's mm. going on here? Because it, Cross-promotion on commercial TV? Never. Because you know what it becomes? It becomes a parody of itself. Yeah. As people... In the pub watching it where I was. As certain Rich- calls become, yeah. Richmond kick a goal and somebody screamed out, Yes, you beauty, we can see Mick Malloy again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, you're right. Uh, uh, that's a good one. That's a real bugbear. And it does, it definitely goes up a notch at finals time, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, it's so unoriginal. There's a lot of comparison between Fox uh, footy coverage and Channel 7 coverage. Obviously, less so at finals time because Fox are taking the seven feet. But when that, that in. Um, is sort of a reason you notice the difference more. It comes down to that post-game analysis. Not just analysis. Essendon, Sydney, mm. it's abrupt. They don't show blocks oh, of it. Yeah. It's, it's sort of... They no, just, you're right. Yeah, no. That, my God. Well, again, so, I don't know, we're assuming too much here. Wouldn't you think that they'd send, you know, there's only one final on at any one time. Mm. Don't you make sure you've got one of your more experienced footy directors calling the shots there? I mean, how do you miss that? <laughs> it was it was a clear case of whatever the time was, that's on my running sheet, press button, yeah. cue, end credits, off to the studio next game. Because they didn't go straight to the news or something, did they? Well, there was no sort of obvious reason. There was there was sort of that five-minute little news thing, and then yeah. off, off to off to Adelaide for the next game. No, you, that, just, you just miss Joe Watson and Kelly's Yeah, yeah. No, that, that was really poor. <laughs> the post-game analysis, though, as, as a whole, um, a huge contrast. So Fox footy, you've got the four guys sitting around the table, including the host. Now, they're all pretty knowledgeable. You hear a, a range of views. You get plenty of graphics to come up with what they're saying. You then go to the two guys in the lab, Kingy and Jared or or, who, or Moons or whoever. What's Where's the war room? No, it's the lab now. Oh, okay. It used to be the war room. Because I, I love that because that reminded me of Dr. Strangelove and yeah, I wanted yeah. that Russian actor to be no, taking it's a, Well, now during finals, you see him actually uh, walking. You saw him at the start of the coverage, the one Eddie hosted, which I think was Saturday night. You saw them striding down the office corridor onto the set, you know, and Eddie yeah, sort yeah. of leading them through the run-through and everything. Yeah. The war room's about a 10-metre walk from the main, uh, the main set. But you've got two different takes on it in the lab. Uh, sorry, I'll call it the war room again. Um, 
It's it's a heap, and there's not a lot you'd want for in terms of post-game analysis. Sometimes I wonder if it's sort of overkill, but I'd rather have too much and not enough. Seven at the same time. Now, their post-game goes for a long time too. Okay, you, you get roaming Brian on Friday nights, which has been a bit different, you know, if it were easy for us to... Can I actually say that Brian's commentary has been strong in big games, there's been... Oh, he's a much better commentator on Friday night than Saturday night. Yeah. Clearly. I'm saying in some big games where there's been some really pivotal ends to the game, he's been yeah. very strong. Yeah. No, look, when he calls straight, I think he's okay. And this is where I've got some sympathy for him. I've discussed this with him. And he said to me, you've got to understand it's entertainment, entertainment. But you can present the product to appeal to a hardcore audience and make it entertaining, can't you? And that's yep. going to yeah, be yeah. more likely to convert them to... Hardcore fans, I would have thought, than mm. the sort of celebrity cutaways we were just talking about before. But whilst Seven devote the same amount of time to the post game, it's just really unstructured. It, you know, there's four guys sitting there. There's not a lot of info to go with it. It's just, well, what do you think, Lee? You know, what do you think, Lingy? And they're what trying do you to think, get Richo? interviews in the rooms and then the press at the same time. Yeah. Plus, uh, innumerable promos for the Sunday game day or whatever and and super slow-mo they've clearly invested a heap of money in the super slow-mo thing so they've got to show it off in every single second and I sort of feel like for all the time devoted to that post game you don't actually learn a lot so I always end up watching it on Fox because a you don't get the ads between goals and b you're going to get a pretty decent post game so the differences are uh, become more stark for me during the finals, I think. But that gets back to a bigger question, finally, and I just touched on it then. It's that thing about entertainment versus information. Now, someone at Seven has this belief that we're always going to get the rusted on people no matter what we serve up, and that's true to a point. We want to appeal to the people that aren't necessarily that into footy. And so we think, well, they don't articulate this, but clearly they think that they're more likely to do that by celebrity cutaways, halftime stories where you go and, you know, run through Jordan Lewis's lounge room or something. Uh, That sort of little tricky sort of stuff, lots of promos, uh, little so-called funny segments. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I I think the way to create a longer-term audience is to educate them in the nuances of the game. And I think back in its heyday, Channel 9, when they did the cricket, I think that's what they did well. They thought, okay, we're going to appeal to the more casual viewer, but we're not going to piss off our rusted-on people by treating them like idiots. We're going to educate those that don't know as much, and gradually they come aboard. And I've, I've spoken to people who have become cricket tragics through that, through those very means, why wouldn't that apply also to football? The cricket did have something that football can't really recreate and shouldn't try to recreate. What's that? They had um, antagonistic parties. So Tony Gregg would oh, play yeah. Yeah. the role of the tourists' defender and then try to needle the Australians, and in doing so, create discussion about the weaknesses of an Australian bowler or batsman, mm. and be able to do it, and then look these people in the face afterwards. We don't get a lot of the um, questioning analysis because of the old boys club that is football commentary. It's generally effusive. Mm. And then occasionally there are some commentators who do take the long handle, but it, it's um, rare. I had a look at the opening of the NFL season with the Patriots and the Kansas Chiefs from a coverage standpoint compared mm-hmm. to Aussie rules. Now, 
before the West Coast versus Port game, there's a little dynamic. And you know what? If you're a fan of either of those teams or you're a kid, it really works. And NFL does it a lot. They take you on the journey with the fans and the players into the ground. The bus yeah. arrives. Yeah. And it actually works really well. And I think less time can be spent pre-game going over the same thing over and over. And a lot of it is pre-promotion for what we're doing at halftime and then after the game and before. I don't even know what status the game is after the game, before the game, during the game. You know what? We don't even need to hear from you. It's great to watch the fans building up, you know, with groups and whatever and maybe then get um, Neil Curdy involved. Is that his name? Neil Curdy, yeah, does the crowd stuff, yeah. I think for finals, that'll be, you know, you know it's finals time. Mm. I'd like to see him. I love when the bus arrives, build up the expectation. Don't build up your own product by pre-advertising it for 15 minutes during the pre-game. No, good point. What about just, I mean, this off the top, but, you know, in a final, why wouldn't you have something like, uh, okay, West Coast and Port, here's how it, it got to this point, and you do a quick recap of both their seasons yeah, yeah, yeah. with little video packages. Okay, well, a high point for them was the round fifteen smashing of. Now that, but do, do, but do it in a in a different way. But hang on, my point yeah. is that 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 can be entertaining because it's the best of, but it's informative yeah, as well. No, so you're bringing the casual viewer on board. It's not rocket science. I really feel as though we've stacked... we should be running TV networks. Oh well, if we're going to be critical, then you you, you critique. We get yeah. critiqued. I think we've really come to a point of um, either it's lack of creativity, maybe new eyes needed for the product. There's nothing really this entire season that has stood out as, that's a great new idea. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And we get that a bit in other sports, slowly but surely, different variations of angles and, and styles of approaching the game. We're here. I really think it has become more of the same and the same starts to give people the irrits. I, I think in big picture terms, you've got Channel 7's coverage, and we're talking TV, Channel 7's coverage, which is, I, I wouldn't say lowest common denominator, but it's it's appealing to a not necessarily that informed audience. And the other end of the scale, you've got the Fox footy coverage, which is absolute hardcore footy heads. I reckon the ideal coverage is sort of somewhere in between. Now, I, I don't get me wrong. I like the eggheady stuff, so I'm not having a go at Fox footy. But I reckon you could dial that back a bit and throw in a bit more, what I'm talking about before, or even a bit more nostalgia. You know, so like leading up to the final, um, say, Richmond-Geelong Friday night, you have a uh, a five-minute package looking at Richmond over the years and what's gone on during the last 30 years. Now, that would take a bit of time and energy, but, geez, it would be a, a great little package that would really get you into the coverage. Instead, you know you're going to get 60 seconds, the man from Snowy uh, River voiceover bloke, you know, going over the top with too much yep. too much cliche. You know, like, just I want somewhere in between those two extremes. Well, well I'd actually like that package that you're talking about. Mm. Not necessarily the prehistory, but some element of the game through mm. image, more than with, with the narration, but mainly image. And surprise me. Mm. Come up with something really interesting that is surprising. Yeah. Maybe it might be in the Richmond-Geelong game. It might be Josh Caddy's journey from cat to tiger and, and footage of playing against and for. What, but surprise me with, as ESPN does, with something that is visually impressive, informative, and almost artistic in a way. 
we don't we just don't get that in football. And the other thing we don't get for me in football, in the coverage of football on TV, is did we used to have sounds of the game? Does that still exist? Uh, yeah, very infrequently though. I heard it again recently. We don't get a camera at a different level. That is. I, I, there is cameras for covering the game and there's cameras for remembering the game. Yeah. And again, the Americans do it beautifully. They, that NFL camera, Yeah. it's often slow motion, but it's always on ground level. You yeah. can't watch the game like that, but you can relive a game like that. Yeah. Where's that? I love that. Yeah, well, I mean, they started uh, they started that sort of film stuff, I reckon, with the 89 grand final. Remember the sort of ground level slow-mo yeah. of the yeah, yeah. opening bounce, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, I don't know if cost is a factor there. but We I think also lost the guy that was brilliant at doing it was Rob, Rob Dixon. Dixon. yeah. Well, Pete Dixon certainly does a great job, Rob's brother. Yeah. And, um, you know, everyone looks forward to those grand final week uh, docos he, he does every year now. But I think he hit the nail on the head before. I think fresh eyes, fresh thinking, different perspectives. And, you know, look, this is in keeping with a lot of arms of the media now, there's it, a bit of a jobs to the boys and the but same old people. But it's also it out, you know. Yeah. Football quickly went from 12 teams to 18 teams and workload on a weekend Yeah, m- ramped up immeasurably. And we're not, we should never go at people who are producing this stuff because there's a lot of work to be done and it's a bit of a churn out. There's a bit of a cookie cutter about what we're getting. Okay, well, there's a, a fairly thorough going over of TV coverage of finals. Uh, Mark Fine and myself can be contacted. Uh, any network people listening, if you want us to take over your footy coverage, we uh, our, our package starts about, what, 200 and a car? Um, but we won't harass any of your staff. Long lunches, just like the previous uh, chief execs at uh, TV networks. Long lunches. Fat salaries mm. and self-importance beyond our station. Oh, I thought we already had that. I think so. On Footyology, Roco and Finney's rant off. Rightio, time to get angry. Are you angry? I'm very serious. This, uh, serious? I'm, yeah, it's a serious topic. Okay, good. I'll put on my serious introduction then, and I'm going to count you in straight away. Three, two, one, rant. There's a postal vote facing Australians coming up re-gay marriage that strikes to the very heart of equality and marks our nation worldwide, internationally, everybody is watching. So what role does the AFL have to play? The AFL remain community leaders and they take up that responsibility with various rounds to recognise and improve a lot of people with mental health issues, with uh, previously racial vilification issues and now very much the gender, uh, people's gender, and also their sexual orientation. AFL has a round for the GLBT community and a game, St Kilda versus Sydney, an annual affair. They've got coloured scarves and they make all the right noises. But the silence has been deafening from the AFL, re this plebiscite. Why? Because it is a hot potato. I'm sure there are religious people within the organisation. But if the AFL is fair income about standing up for the GLB community. Now is the time to speak. So millions of Australians who love footy more than postal votes are guided in the right direction. You will be marked on how, this is the AFL, on how you respond to this important social issue in the next few days, couple of weeks. 
remain silent and you're round for GLBT and all your hot air ain't worth squat. Now's the time to act. Very well put. Here, here. And uh, on that note, I just read um, a few hours ago that the NRL is doing precisely that. Uh, I think Ian Roberts um, got on the front foot there, and I think the NRL is coming out and publicly advocating a yes vote. If the two biggest Catholic schools, Xavier College and its equivalent in Sydney, whilst not directly supporting gay marriage, have basically come out uh, and favoured the yes vote, it's the AFL must come out strongly. No, I agree. Come on, come on, Gil. I agree. All right. Well, hard to follow that up. Really, makes mine seem a bit trivial by comparison. But I'll give it a crack. Count me in. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off at my club, Finey, or more specifically, some of its supporters. So Essendon limps into the finals. Predictably, gets its ass kicked by Sydney. I dare suggest on social media that a 65-point thumping is a pretty piss-poor effort, and it's like I shot Bambi or something. If there's one thing more frustrating for this lifelong bomber than a 17-year flag drought, the second longest in the club's history, it's barracking for a club with fans softer than your old nana's eider down. But we made finals, I hear them say. Well, whoop de bloody do Nearly half the competition makes finals these days. Essendon finished with 12 wins, barely a 50% strike rate. That's nothing to be turning cartwheels about. Look, I get it. It's been a tough few years, but my biggest fear as a Bomber fan is that the club and its support base goes back to that warm, snuggly embrace of mediocrity into which it had slipped long before the supplement saga reared its ugly 17 genetically mutated heads. If making finals is your gauge of success, nine September qualifications out of 17 probably looks passable. Well, call me a crusty old bastard, Finey, but all I see is an empty trophy cabinet and a club that dithers way too long over list decisions and is way too satisfied with two-thirds of bugger all. Have a look at the club that smashed you on Saturday, Bomber fans. Sydney is contesting its 19th final series in 22 years since looking like a complete basket case. Why do they stay up there? Because they refuse to accept anything less than the most professional standards. They trade and draft aggressively, not afraid to give up a bit to get a bit more. They develop their kids by pumping games into them, not leaving them wasting away in the second so it's four or five years before they can tell if they can actually play or not. And they know, through bitter experience, that the longer you go without success, the more likely you are to foster a culture and a fan base along with it which is too satisfied with too little. It permeates the administration, the football department, and certainly the playing list, hence continual losses in games that should be won. And on days like Saturday, not a jot of resistance, even in the games that aren't expected to be won. Essendon was a club which needed a huge kick up the arse when Kevin Sheedy arrived 37 years ago. It's at the same point again. But if even the considerable army of the club supporters seem happy to bowl along with little more than the odd decent win here and there, where's the demand for something better going to come from? Wake up, Bomber fans, because some of us getting into the tail end of our innings on this planet wouldn't mind looking at something a bit fresher than a tatty old VHS tape of the 2000 Grand Final over and over again. And it's time you pulled your finger is out as well. A couple of things. Yep. Your empty um, trophy cabinet. Yep. Has well, empty. seen premierships in it. You want to see an empty trophy cabinet? <laughs> yeah. uh, come down to see for they'll move it to Moorabbin. There's one premiership cup 
There's a toilet from winning a night series, and there's three or four bronzed boots from past champions that are so obviously fake, it's an embarrassment. I mean, that truly is an empty trophy cabinet. Well, this is my point. We set high standards. Okay, what's the other one? Quick. Well, exactly, quick. Your rants are going beyond the minute, the two yeah, minutes. Yeah, no, that's true. This was a, this was a, <laughs> a sort of a paid half-hour dress to the Essendon Football Club. Well, I'm, my services are available if you, <laughs> want to, if you want to contact my people. All right, look, uh, that'll do us this week. Time to wrap it up. But as we all know by now, uh, we like to finish off with a suitably obscure musical link to the events of the weekend just past. A dramatic weekend, Finey. What was the single most dramatic incident of the weekend? Luke Shelby shot after the siren. Correct. Well, just before that. A few seconds before the, the shot. tackle that led to the... Instigated by yes. Jared Pollock. So I thought we had to come up with something linked with that, and I found it. I didn't have to think too long or too hard, and I came up with an old favourite of both of ours, Akadaka Finey, and a song off the absolutely essential Power Age album, and that song, of course, is Up To My Neck In You. And I quote, Well, I've been up to my neck in trouble. Up to my neck in strife, up to my neck in misery for most of my life. I've been a fool, and you know what a fool can do. I'm telling you. You came along when I needed you. Now I'm up. I'm up to my neck in you. What do you reckon? That was beautiful. I was just thinking of Shuey. Up to my (laughs) neck in trouble. But in the end, it was all duck and all dinner. I like it. We'll see you next week.